A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. And once again, I am very happy to have my friend Eric Peters from epautos.com joining me. Eric, how are things in Corona land today? Well, I've crawled out of my wrong thinkful hole in the ground and I'm looking around. And uh, so at this moment, things seem to be a little bit better than they were last week. Uh, this nationwide corporate policy that was uh, trotted out by, I think it's the National Business Roundtable, representing most of the major corporations, um, decreeing uh, mandatory diapering in their stores, has been dialed back a little bit. In other words, they're not enforcing it now. They, they still try to pester you about it. But uh, you can march right into Walmart, you can march right into Lowe's, Home Depot, most grocery stores and so on, and still go about your business. So you're still going to probably feel like you're in the twilight zone and henpecked about the whole thing. I was uh, very interested in, I mean, you did a lot of writing last week, but one of the things that uh, that you published just within the last few days was uh, an article called Kabuki Pushback. And Eric, this gives yep. me hope because you make a very strong case that the word no still has power, at least for those willing to use it. Oh, absolutely. Particularly in a situation like this, where they're trying very hard to pressure people into this sort of fictitious uniformity. There are a lot of people who don't buy into this narrative for good reason, because the facts uh, paint a very different picture than the cases, the cases that we're constantly hearing about uh, all over the news. But it's bewildering. It's kind of terrifying even to go outside and see all of these diaper wearing zombies everywhere. And a lot of people just figure, ah, I want to go shopping. I'll put the thing on. But if you say no, it's empowering. You know, I think part of the part of the plan here, unfortunately, uh, with the diapering is that they're trying to demoralize people. It is a humiliating thing to have to bend knee to this, to put on this thing and walk around with it uh, like a separating leper. Uh, your your badge that you bought in, that you agree with everything that's going on. That's what they want you to visually manifest by having that diaper on your face. If you say no, you know, you feel good. You feel like you're standing tall again. Uh, you feel not just physically healthy because you can breathe, but you feel psychologically healthy because you've, you know, you've manned up and said, no, I'm not doing this. Well, and there are a couple phrases that you used here that I think are so apt and so descriptive. You talk about how, you know, right now there's been a big spike in fear porn about the cases, the cases. And you also mentioned the fear organ grinders. Could I get you to expand on, yeah. on both of those concepts? Yeah, sure. It's essentially it's the media marches in lockstep. You know, the, the term the mainstream media, it's a legitimate term because most of the major media and by which I, I mean things, you know, CNN, MSNBC, the major networks, all of that, uh, you can switch from one to the next. You're going to hear the same thing. The cases, the cases which is the new bugaboo thing. And the reason for that, of course, is they can't talk about the death, the death, which they were doing. Remember, four months ago, they were talking about uh, bodies stacking up like cordwood, but they failed to. Even at the height of this supposed pandemic, they just never materialized in the millions and the hundreds of thousands that they claimed would happen. So it became kind of awkward. It became a little embarrassing for them to keep talking about that, uh, particularly when, as the cases went up, the body count went down. But anyway, they're trying to conflate in people's minds 
cases with death. So you hear this constant grinding organ, the cases, the cases, in order to justify these ever more draconian policies. It's ironic, isn't it, that right now when the risk of dying is known and it's low, uh, the diapering is much more extreme now than it was four months ago when most people really didn't have a clue what was going to happen. And at that time, it might have been reasonable to put on a diaper or an N95 respirator or even a moon suit, because we didn't know whether we're facing the bubonic plague. Now we know that we're not, and yet they're trying to make every single human being on this entire, in this entire continent put on a diaper. Well, the good news, as you point out in this article, is but there are people who are recognizing, hey, the, the narrative that we're being told about how dangerous and fearful this is isn't panning out, and, and they're finding the courage to say no to those diapering mm-hmm. mandates. Now, this is, this is at some risk. I mean, I'm sure you've seen some of the videos of some of the, con- the uh, confrontations that have ensued by those yes. people who refuse to submit. Well, that's actually part of what's driving this. Uh, social pressure is building. Uh, people like myself, people like yourself, a lot of people who are good people, not looking for a fight, are tired and weary of being harassed and treated almost like an intervention class uh, as a result of this sickness psychosis that's spreading. And some people are snapping. There was a case, and I think this was in Canada, but it's, it's analogous and it parses, uh, of an elderly man, a guy into his 70s, who went to a store to get something, and he was harassed and pestered by the clerks about putting on the diaper. The old guy just wanted to get his stuff and get out. Well, the thing escalated. It got out of hand, and the the armed government workers came, and eventually they shot this guy to death. And it all happened because somebody harassed this old guy who was just trying to live his remaining days out and get some food uh, to humiliate and degrade himself and put on a diaper because some 20-year-old clerk in a store told him to. Right. And you and the, the line that jumped out at me from your article here was one of the store employees admitted none of that would have happened yeah. if they just had left him alone in the first place. Of course. Of course, and it's the same with most of these other examples. So the people who are initiating the aggression in these cases are almost invariably the diaperers. Nobody's causing a problem. They're causing the problem. People are trying to go to a shop to get something, get some food, whatever, you know, live their lives, and they're being accosted. I just posted another article uh, that pertains to what's going on in Florida where they've decreed mandatory diapering everywhere, including outdoors. And they're sicking armed government workers on people who even have their, their diaper partially down and wow. uh, you know, threatening them with guns and jail uh, and imposing these beefy fines. So let's talk and about the sneeze police, because I, I think that's that's yeah. what you, you coined the phrase to yeah. describe them. The sneeze police. And you actually have video of a, of a police officer accosting someone for their mask right. infraction. Right. And in this case, the guy's actually wearing his diaper, but he dared to put it down for a moment, I think, to make a phone call in this case, uh, whereupon he was uh, accosted by a morbidly overweight armed government worker uh, who, of course, has a gun and a badge and all the threat that that implies of murderous violence uh, and handed him a piece of uh, paper demanding an extortion note, basically, that will demand of him $110 for uh, daring to expose his face in public. And I, it makes me wonder, at what point do we push back? Not just say no, but push back. I, it's going to come to that, unfortunately, and it may be what they want. Maybe they are trying to trigger some kind of a social explosion, which will then become the pretext for a lockdown that we can't even begin to imagine. That's, and that's the thing that I think smart people should be asking themselves is, um, it's, it's bad enough where it is right now, but where is it leading? What's the direction this is pointing? And I don't see anything good at the, at the end of uh, this trail that we find ourselves on. 
No, I don't either. Uh, I keep on, when I go on the radio and in my articles, focusing on my belief, um, and I think it's a belief that's supported by logic, reason, and facts, that this attempt to impose the universal diapering is the prequel to requiring universal needling. Both things will rest on the same premise, um, and the diapering will establish that, well, it's, it has to be that way, and it will also make people so beaten down that they'll line up to get their needling. And then those of us who don't, the outliers, the wrong thinkers, the ones who aren't wearing the diapers right now, uh, who refuse to get the needling, are going to be excommunicated from society and perhaps worse. We'll be forbidden from going anywhere. We'll be locked down in our homes, perhaps, uh, with ankle bracelets on. That kind of thing has already happened. There's a case yep. in Kentucky where that happened. Uh, I see this as, to me, it's, it's blazing neon clear where this is headed, and that's why I'm so adamant uh, about, about going against this diapering, whatever it takes. And, and I hope I'm not piling on fear porn when I mention this, too, but you add up all of that that you just outlined with this, this decided push toward a cashless society, and suddenly mm-hmm. even your money is under the control of the government and, and the regulatory agencies and the banks, and you can so quickly become an unperson just by you know, your disobedience to whatever the edict of the day is. Yeah, think about what would happen in a scenario where your ability to buy and to sell to be paid to, to, to participate in any form of economic activity were entirely digitized electronic. Uh, and then someone like myself or yourself gets on the air, gets on the radio, says something wrong, thankful, and that is picked up by an algorithm or uh, a modern-day Stasi agent somewhere, and they simply throw a switch and turn off your ability to buy and sell. You can now no longer buy anything because your account has been frozen. You have no money in your pocket that you can go to the store with. Uh, you were literally posi- uh, put in the position uh, that the kulaks in Russia were in back in the 1920s and 30s when Stalin just had them systematically starved to death by the millions. Well, and, and for people who might be reluctant to believe that, all you have to do is look at the stores that were, you know, with firm moral conviction, turning people away for failure to wear that outward symbol of obedience. Exactly right. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, when you have cash... Uh, you can still transact business under the table on the down low with your fellow wrong thinkers. <laughs> you know, for example, I live in a small town, and I know a number of local merchants and people. And, you know, we can do things uh, under the table. I can slide them a 20. They can slide me some beef. But what happens when you can't do that because you no longer have money other than what's digital and the powers that be have just turned off your ability to transmit or receive any digital currency? Eric Peters is my guest. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Please visit his website, read his wonderful articles, and if you are so inclined and you see something that uh, you know his sponsors have to author, offer, go do business with them and, and show some support. Eric is, is doing some terrific work and has been carrying, uh, doing some of the heavy lifting for the, the cause of liberty for a long time. Eric, one of your recent columns, I believe this one was published yesterday, uh, is, is on fungibility. And, and you, yes. you confront a topic that I think more people are going to find themselves thinking of, hopefully, sooner than later. Yeah. Fungibility is something, uh, it's a kind of a banker's term or an economics 
term. It just means uh, something of value that can be converted into something else of value, roughly equivalent. Uh, we use money in that sense. Money is a fungible means of trading a value for value. But what if the money that we have becomes valueless tomorrow or next week? As, as happened many times in the past and recently in Venezuela, of course, the, the example that more people are familiar with is what happened in Germany before the rise of Hitler, when it literally took a wheelbarrow full of German marks to get a loaf of bread. And then the next day you needed two wheelbarrows of money, and it absolutely destroyed people uh, who had been solvent before the hyperinflation came and suddenly found that they had nothing because their currency was worth nothing. So I was thinking the other day, as a number of people probably are also thinking, got a little money set aside, you know, from, uh, fictitious well, Federal Reserve notes, and I'm thinking, am I foolish for just kind of having this as my rainy day slush fund, or should I go out and convert it into something of tangible value, whether that be uh, food to store, ammunition, perhaps another gun, uh, parts for my tractor, you name it, anything that's got tangible value that I might not be able to buy tomorrow, not just because it's not available, but because I no longer have anything of value to trade for it. Yeah, I think we're all about to get a really solid education on what a barter economy looks like, at least those of us who are determined to live as freely as possible in an unfree world. Uh, that's going to be a survival skill. And I'm, I'm not talking apocalyptic survival, but just simply if yep. you don't want to be hogtied by the system, as you were describing in the last segment, um, you're going to have yep. to find some alternate ways to meet your needs. And this this is one of those alternate ways. Sure, exactly. Um, you and I have talked off the air about this. Uh, I'm out in the country, and I have a little bit of land, and I've been doing what I think is prudent, given the circumstances, to uh, make it such that I can uh, I can more readily um, live off of my own land. I've gotten, I've resumed, I've had them before, but I've resumed um, being a bird herder. I've got chickens and ducks again, and the next thing will probably be goats, and that's what I'm spending money on, things like that. Uh, anything that is a durable good that will always be of value, even if the money becomes value-less, if you have these things of value that are useful to you in the first place. And in the second place, something that might be useful to your neighbor that he's willing to swap you for something that you need. That's what fungibility is. You know, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm uh, you know, tooting the panic horn here, but a lot of people have woken up to the fact that in their moment of need, particularly if they live in a big urban area where there's a lot of this protesting and rioting going on, the police will not be there to protect them. So sales of guns right. have been absolutely through the roof for uh, the better part right. of this year. Um, ammunition. I've talked to a number of friends who are like, you know, I've been trying to purchase ammunition. They're having trouble finding it. And when they do find it, it's, it's prohibitively mm-hmm. expensive. And I, I'm not saying everybody right. needs to go fill a bunker with bullets, but, um, you know, if it, it's clear that is a high-demand item, and those who have, have stocked up when it was plentiful, um, guess what? You've got some of the coin of the realm that, that people would be willing That's to right. trade for. That's right. And, you know, ultimately, it's even not that much of a risky proposition. Let's be optimistic, and let's say we manage to somehow sail through the Scylla and Charybdis that's going on right now and emerge from it on the other side with a country largely intact and still functional. These things that you have bought now that are of, of enduring value, things like ammunition, spare parts, maybe you go out and buy a diesel tractor, you can always convert that back into cash if you need to. You know, you might not get as much cash back, but it's a lot better than getting no cash back or no value back if your currency that you have right now uh, winds up being made worthless by forces that are out of your control. And I think that's the key point that I want to get across. 
whatever you buy in terms of tangible goods, you physically possess it. You have it. Nobody else can take its value away. The, the, the scary thing about the paper money that's in our pockets and, and that's in our bank accounts is that it's not under our control. You have $1,000 in the bank, but tomorrow that $1,000 might only be worth $500 because of the, the people who are behind the curtain who are manipulating the value of our money. Uh, let's talk about skills as part of those uh, uh, those assets that a person can possess, which cannot be taken away from them. Um, obviously, uh, tangible goods, you know, hard hard uh, assets are, are a good thing. But to what skills would you consider a worthwhile investment? In other words, what what can what kind of uh, skills should you con- use your money to convert to you know your free time into? Well, the more you know how to do, the more independent you are. Uh, I'm a pretty good mechanic. I can and I can fix pretty much anything that goes wrong with any of my vehicles myself without relying on anybody else and, more importantly, without having to pay anybody else. Uh, that's not only a money, money saver right now. It could be a lifesaver in the future if it's on me to fix it and there's nobody else around to fix it. And if I don't fix it, I've got a real problem. Same goes with skills that I'm trying to acquire, like uh, learning how to grow uh, a garden successfully. I've never really done that much. I'm doing it this year for the first time. Learning how to raise animals, learning how to take those animals and make it a going concern, not only for food, but maybe for barter and even for money. You can have, in a, you have enough chickens, for example, you can, you can sell eggs to other people or you can trade eggs for things that you don't have that they do, things like that. Okay. Yeah, it's, I've heard it said that wealth, the, a good definition of wealth is everything that remains when your cash flow stops. And when you think of it that way, you realize, okay, it's not just about money in the bank. It's about what do you have at your disposal. And, you know, sometimes sometimes you have to think outside the box beyond just, okay, I have these bags of silver and Mm -hmm. gold and I have these seeds and whatnot. But do you have the skills to put those tools and other things to to use? Mm -hmm. Another thing that I'd recommend that we relearn as a society, as a people, is something that our grandparents' generation practiced, and that is living below our means. Uh, people of the Depression era went through something horrible, and they learned a valuable lesson, which is to not get into debt and, to the extent that you can, buy what you can afford uh, and what you can afford to write a check for or pay cash for, not that you have to finance. Uh, have, have, have money set aside. Have things set aside. And don't waste anything. Make use of all the things that you have. Hear, here. We got just a couple of minutes left here, Eric. Are there any other topics on your radar screen that uh, you would encourage our listeners to to pay especially close attention to? Yeah, you know, actually, we might want to talk about a car topic. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this heard the news because it was hard not to hear it uh, about Elon Musk's Tesla company um, being considered the most valuable car company in the world, even more so than Toyota or Volkswagen or any of the other major conglomerates. Uh, and making all of these billions and billions of dollars. Well, when you dig into a little bit, <laughs> what you find is that, no, actually, he's losing money selling cars, but he's making lots of money uh, in the crony capitalist fashion by selling these regulatory credits, the carbon credits, uh, to other automakers in exchange for him building these electric cars. It's it's one of the greatest unreported, undiscussed scams of our time. And if it weren't for all this woo-flu stuff, I think it would be it would be page one news. Okay. And is there any good news in the automotive industry these days? You know, I I look at the economy and I still feel like we are teetering right on a a very steep precipice. Um, Is is it still a good time to buy a new car? Bad time to sell a used one? What do you think? Well, I think it's probably a terrible time to sell a used car, but it's probably a very good time if you're in the market for a used or a new car because people 
uh, who are selling are pretty desperate. They're selling because they need money generally, whether it's a dealer or an individual, which puts you uh, in uh, the catbird seat. You know, you go to a dealer nowadays, and these people really need to move their product. You know, we're getting close now to the end of the of the the model year as well as the calendar year. So all of these 2020 vehicles that have been languishing on their lots lots for the last several months, they got to move them. Once that calendar turns, even if they're brand new and they're sitting on that dealership lot, it's a 2020, which means it's last year's car, which means, in effect, it's a used car and the value of it plummets. So they're under a lot of pressure to move their product. So if you're you know, someone who's in the market for a car right now, it's a really good time to go shopping. Okay, the website is epautos.com. Eric Peters, thanks, as always, for our weekly visit. You bet. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know, in the days ahead, I'm going to be welcoming a limited number of sponsors to this program and this podcast. I hope that you will pay heed to their message and that you'll find yourself doing business with them if they have what uh, what you need or if you know somebody who needs what they're offering please tell them about these businesses they are helping to make it po- possible for me to do this podcast in uh, in many cases i am figuratively singing for my supper and i sure appreciate uh, those who help to make this a possibility i really love what i do I hope that comes through loud and clear. I really love the opportunity to uh, jump behind this microphone a couple times a day and, uh, you know, speak truth, or at least truth as best I understand it. Coming up, let's, uh, well, actually, let's dive right into this. I know you have seen the news stories. I know you've heard uh, talk about uh, American stormtroopers on the streets, you know, as uh, the the siege of Portland, Oregon, and Seattle and other major cities has carried on. Portland has kind of been a focal point, though. I think uh, for the better part of the last couple of months now, there have been <clears throat> protesters. Sorry, they, they, they look and act more like rioters, but... You know, the press is calling them protesters, so we'll, we'll go with that for the moment. That have surrounded the federal building, the federal court building there. And, uh, wow, it's, I mean, you know, why tell people, hey, if you don't like America, man, go to Somalia. When Somalia can come to you, because it is crazy. It looks like a war zone. And it's not getting better. And, of course, we have seen heavily armed, uh, you know, marshals and other federal law enforcement they're trying to defend that courthouse complex and i i i'm going to put my cards on the table here i am not a fan of federal law enforcement and and i'm not making a blanket statement they're all evil people but let me just say this i have seen firsthand what happens when rogue federal agents you know endowed with this sense of you know infallibility and and supreme power they feel omnipotent the people like dan love from the blm who went after my friends the bundy family so viciously that even people within his own agency blew the whistle on him and said this is unprofessional this is illegal what he's doing and i think if you look at the results of uh, two separate trials uh, in oregon after occupying the malheur wildlife refuge acquitted Those who actually went to trial, didn't take the plea bargain, came away with a full acquittal by the jury. Why? 
Well, in part because the feds overcharged them and also in part because it was very clear that the feds did not have clean hands. And the jury wasn't buying their story. They look, we're just innocent victims and these right wingers came and took over and they made us cry. No, they didn't buy that. And of course, in the case of Bunkerville back in 2014, that case was dismissed with prejudice because of Brady violations where the feds withheld exculpatory evidence and sat on it and and sent innocent people to jail, those who took plea bargains. And uh, finally, there was so much egg on the government's face that uh, the judge had no choice but to dismiss that case with the understanding it could not they could not be charged again with those those same charges. So or at least tried again on those those original charges. So here's the thing. I don't I don't have any love in my heart for federal law enforcement. I think that uh, it it has it, it whatever usefulness it might have had. First of all, I don't think it's authorized in the Constitution. Secondly, I think that uh, there's a tendency to believe might makes right. And when you have almost unlimited resources available to you, as the federal government does, it uh, makes it easier to believe that whatever we do is right. If we say it, it's the law. So I don't look at uh, at them as, you know, being this this force for good and this force for justice so much as I see them as a force for making sure that the will of the federal government prevails no matter what. Now, having said that, I have zero sympathy for those, quote, protesters who have been actively trying to burn down this uh, federal courthouse. I mean, look, I know that there's this this disconnect and there's this this sense of, well, you know, if if the Bundys hadn't been white, well, the feds would have gone in there and they'd have gone full Rambo on them. I think you need to understand that there's a vast world of difference in the behavior of those who occupied the Malheur Wildlife Refuge. Yes, they were armed, but they were peacefully armed, meaning they didn't point their guns at people. They didn't go around destroying property. They actually cleaned up and improved that Malheur Wildlife Refuge. They They took care of years of neglect when it was in the hands of the federal government during that short time that they occupied that refuge. But more importantly, they occupied the moral high ground because they never went out there aggressing against people. No one pointed guns at people. No one ordered people out of the refuge at gunpoint. Can you say the same thing about the people who are currently laying siege to the federal courthouse there in Portland, as well as in other areas? I mean, the media tries to pretend it doesn't exist. I saw, um, what was his name? Congressman Gerald Nadler. Someone asked him, hey, what about Antifa? What they're doing in Portland? Oh, it's a myth. It's a myth. You know, they're not even real. And I'm sorry, but uh, that's the narrative that the media is taking. Except they're taking a little more subtle approach in that if we don't report on it, well, it must not exist. It exists. And the destruction and the, the just viciousness of these protesters is really something to behold. I mean, they are little revolutionaries. So I don't fault those members of the U.S. Marshals as well as other members of federal law enforcement who have been tasked with protecting those federal buildings because there is a mob, and I mean a literal mob, trying to destroy them, trying to burn them down. But politicians have seized on this. You notice the the Democratic mayors of several of these cities are talking about, how dare the president send these shock troops to to our cities. But as I understand it, these troops are not roaming the streets. They're not death squads going out, snatching people off the street and disappearing them. They're limited to those federal complexes, those justice buildings, and, and the areas surrounding that. 
And the mobs are getting more and more violent. There's the mobs are saying, it's provocative. You know, you came here and, you know, so we have to respond like this. Guys, you were responding like that. You were you were acting out before the feds ever showed up looking like, you know, troops headed into Fallujah. So I'm going to uh, depart from uh, from what you might expect. And actually, uh, I'm going to I'm going to throw some defense the way of those marshals and others who are defending these federal buildings. I don't agree with them entirely, but I don't think that they are the aggressors in this case. In fact, I think they're showing a great deal of restraint compared to what I have seen them do in other cases. Pat Buchanan has a great commentary. American stormtroopers, a bright, shining lie. He says, with the Mark O. Hatfield United States Courthouse under nightly siege from violent radicals and Portland's police hard-pressed to protect it, President Trump sent in federal agents to secure the building. Here's the reaction from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Quote, the use of stormtroopers under the guise of law and order is a tactic that is not appropriate to our country in any way. End quote. Now, Majority Whip James Clyburn endorsed the speaker's equating of the U.S. law enforcement officers to Ernest Rome's S.A. thugs being deployed to do the dirty work of Adolf Hitler. Nobody asked the federal government to come into Portland. Nobody asked them to come to Seattle. Ranted Clyburn, this is something that's made up of whole cloth by this administration as an excuse for sending in stormtroopers to incite the people. End quote. Now, Clyburn had earlier compared the U.S. officers sent to Portland to Heinrich Himmler's Nazi secret police. This president and this attorney general seem to be doing everything they can to impose Gestapo activities on local communities. And this is what I've been warning about for a long time. End quote. Now, Clyburn's Gestapo comparison, says Pat Buchanan, recalls Senator Abe Ribicoff's denunciation of the Chicago police of Mayor Richard Daley during the 1968 Democratic National Convention. After police crashed with, clashed with radicals in Grant Park, with George McGovern, we wouldn't have Gestapo tactics in the street of Chicago, streets of Chicago. So what do the men and women of the FBI, FBI, DEA, ICE, DHS, CBP, and the U.S. Marshal Service think of the congressional leaders who equate them with Nazi stormtroopers and the Gestapo? That's what Pat Buchanan's asking. Outraged that Trump sent in federal agents to protect a building they had under siege for weeks, the Portland mob came out in even greater numbers and rioted through the weekend. Saturday night, there were solidarity riots with Portland and Seattle, Oakland, Austin, Richmond, and other cities. Pat Buchanan says, consider the depth of hatred of Trump that would cause leaders of the Democratic Party to compare U.S. law enforcement to Nazis. Still, to date, no apologies have been heard. Yet, he says, as police are again being cursed and showered with debris, it's hard to see how this country reunites and around what, no matter which party prevails in November. In addition to the reigniting of protests and riots in urban centers, there has come, in tandem with demands to defund the police, a surge in violent crime. And last week, Trump offered some staggering statistics. In New York City, over 300 people were shot in the last month alone, a 277% increase over the same period of a year ago. Murders this year have spiked 27% in Philadelphia and 94% in Minneapolis, compared to the same period in 2019. Trump also said perhaps no citizens have suffered more from the menace of violent crime than the wonderful people of Chicago. At least 414 people have been murdered in the city this year, a roughly 50% increase over last year. More than 1,900 people have been shot. These are numbers that aren't even to be believed. End quote. Now we're going to come back to this article in just a few moments. You can imagine how Democratic leaders are reacting to this. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back, and I'm sharing with you an article from Pat Buchanan, American Stormtroopers, A Bright, Shining Lie. Now, I think he makes a pretty good distinction here between rogue federal agents who are not acting in the interest of justice and surrendering to the uh, mob, the culture, the cancel culture mob that is currently rampaging across the American landscape. And in his article here, he talks about President Trump laying out, just putting on the table numbers of how crime has increased. Violent crime has increased in so many cities compared to this same time last year. And this is not something that has gone well. He talks about, you know, in New York City, how many people were shot, the the increase in Philadelphia, Minneapolis, Chicago. And Pat Buchanan says his Black, Black Lives Matter protests revive ostensibly for greater justice for black folks. A vastly disproportionate number of victims of these urban shootings and killings are black, as are a disproportionate number of the criminals doing the shooting and killing. Now, the New York Times suggests that a new silent majority of 2020, unlike Richard Nixon's silent majority of 1969, backs the protesters and their causes. Well, Pat Buchanan says a dissent. While the country was disgusted and outraged at George Floyd's death from that cop kneeling on his neck and supported the protests and the calls for police reform, two months of leftist rampages have taken their toll. He says when the protests turned into riots and when the looting and arson began, when the statues began to be pulled down, when the rampages went on and on for weeks and months after Floyd's death, support began to wane and it's dissipating quickly. His point is the country's not going to sit still for three more months of this. At some point soon, America's going to say enough is enough. Moreover, he points out, Trump has turned a permanent presidential spotlight on a real outrage. That is the shootings and killings that go on year in and year out and are now escalating, especially in poor black neighborhoods of major cities and which are accepted as normal by the same liberal Democrats who've misruled those cities for decades. Trump has put this issue on the table for the indefinite future and the ferocity of the liberal reaction testifies to the validity of the issue and the terror of the left that a consistent stand for law and order and with the cops who guarantee it against the mobs that threaten it might turn the tide in middle America back to where it naturally resides. The majority of Americans believe, and rightly so, that this is a good country. And they will eventually tune out radicals who visibly hate its heroes and history and have on offer nothing but their own incoherent rage. Wow. I mean, take it for what it's worth. I'm not saying you have to agree, but that's it's refreshing to to see Pat Buchanan's take on this. Um, he probably offers a little more leniency to federal law enforcement than I would. But again, I'm not confusing them with the mindless violence of the left. I've seen abuse with my own eyes that the feds have done. I've seen attempts to hold them accountable that have left me feeling frustrated, like, you know, justice never really happened there. Lavoy Finnicum's death is, is a really good example of this. But compared to the mindless mobs, yeah. You know, it's, it's not like we're, we're being given the choice. Look, you either, you either take, you know, the, the, the federal stormtroopers, as Nancy Pelosi would put it, or you take the mob. Um, I think we have other choices, too. But in no way... Can I support what the mob is doing? I don't think you should feel necessarily uh, pressured into doing so as well. By the way, speaking of the mob, 
Let's talk for a moment about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and their hostility toward the, the Western nuclear family. I thought this was so fascinating. There's an article. Uh, this is from the Mises Institute. Bradley Thomas. Why Marxist organizations like the BLM seek to dismantle the Western nuclear family. I won't read the whole article, but I'll share with you a couple of excerpts here. Um, one of the most oft-cited and criticized goals of the Black Lives Matter organization is its stated desire to abolish the family as we know it. Now, this is right from their official website. Quote, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages. Ooh. Shades of Hillary that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents and children are comfortable. End quote. Now, this idea isn't unique to BLM, right? Disrupting the nuclear family is a very commonly stated goal among Marxist organizations. And given that BLM's founders have specifically claimed to be trained Marxists. And again, this is documented. If you want to click on it, this isn't just someone's opinion. You can actually see it in their own words. We should not be surprised that the organization's leadership has embraced a Marxian view of the family, says Bradley Thomas. But where does this hostility toward the family originate? Well, believe it or not, it comes from theories of Marx and Engels themselves, at least in part. And their earlier views that an earlier matriarchal version of the family rejected private property as an organizing principle of society. It was only later that the, this older tribal model of the family gave way to the modern patriarchal family, which promotes and sustains private property. Bradley Thomas says clearly in the Marxian view, this new type of family must be opposed since the destruction of the family model will make it easier to abolish private property as well. Now, there's some nice history that he goes into here, including early family units and tribal life and the transition to the pairing family and so forth. But how to overcome the patriarchy? Because this seems to be the goal of the Marxists, including Black Lives Matter. In the Marxian view, Bradley Thomas says, therefore, the modern nuclear family runs counter to the ancient communistic household angles earlier described. It's patriarchal and centered on private property. Quote, in the great majority of cases, the man has to earn a living and to support his family, at least among the possessing classes. He thereby obtains a superior position that has no need of any legal special privilege. In the family, he is the bourgeois. The woman represents the proletariat. The family unit, rather than the collective tribe, had become the industrial unit of society. The impending communist revolution will reduce this whole care of inheritance to a minimum by changing at least the overwhelming part of the permanent and inheritable wealth, the means of production, into social property. That's what Engels concluded. What would that new social arrangement look like? Well, he says the care and education of children becomes a public matter. Society cares equally well for all children, legal or illegal. This removes the care about the consequences, which now forms the essential social factor, moral and economic, hindering a girl to surrender unconditionally to the beloved man. And Bradley Thomas says in this, we see early echoes of the modern left's current refrain attacking patriarchy and the nuclear family is essentially capitalist and private property based institutions. Fascinating. In this, he says, BLM is no different from other Marxist groups. The organization's goals extend far beyond police abuse and police brutality. The ultimate goal is the abolition of a society based upon private property in the means of production. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. You can check them out for yourself at the com. All right. One quick thought here. I know that uh, I know that many of you who listen to this program 
you want to speak the truth. I see you do it. I actually see it on social media. I see, you know, you send me articles. You send me things that you've written. I love it when people send me, by the way, op-eds that they've written. Hey, could you read this? Could you, uh, you know, give me any ideas? Is there another way to say this? I so, I'm so honored when you send that and share that with me. Um, this is a great suggestion from James Walpole. And I'm just going to throw this out there because I've been guilty of, of engaging in, you know, combat online. In most conflicts of ideas, says James Walpole, it's Socratic dialogue. That will carry the day. He says, there are so many controversial issues in our world right now and so many people who want to change the way we think, see, speak, feel and live because of them. He says, I'm not an expert on COVID, not an expert on climate change, not an expert on China, not an expert on interracial and intersex relations, etc. I have strong ideas and beliefs, yes, and I should try to learn as much as I can or as much as is practical about issues that matter. But he says, I also realize it would take a lifetime to gain the full data picture on any of these issues. And I also realize that any attempts at data gathering are especially colored now by strong bias, censorship, either political or otherwise, hatred and fear. So what's a thinker to do? Well, he says, maybe a cautious agnosticism is justified, but the vehement ideologies now held by most people really don't allow for aloofness particularly on issues with consequences for political freedom. If you wish to check anti-freedom ideologies, you're going to have to do some challenging. But it's not realistic to expect the average person to dig into history and scientific studies in a rigorous way. So what's the right approach? He says, in my experience, a Socratic dialogue works best. And this is what it boils down to. Ask good questions. See what facts or evidence thereof your opponent puts forward. Unless you have opposing evidence, don't worry so much about hurriedly Googling some confirmation of your own side. Accept their evidence, but question their premises or conclusions. He says it's far more efficient to deal with identifying the errors in logic than the errors in fact, though correcting all kinds of errors are important. Logic works by a series of first principles that everyone can learn and no one can evade. Contradictions, fallacies, false equivalencies, and other errors in thinking are much easier to dislodge than disputes over evidence. In fact, evidence can often be ambiguous. So James Walpole says the other benefit to accepting your opponent's evidence, conditionally at least, is to make the truth-seeking process a little less combative. Combative discussions rarely lead to a change in shared understanding. So he says, try to listen and look for the truth in the other person's statements, then dismantle the bad connections of logic. If there are errors of fact, those can be fixed next. That is really wonderful advice. And again, you'll find it in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. This is... Is the Brian Hyde Show.